0: Well, hello and welcome to Eurasian Knot. I'm your host Sean Gillery,
1: and I'm your fellow co-host Rosana Novikova.
0: As you know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while now, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and generous patrons give monthly donations to help us keep this podcast going and do some extra things. So, if you enjoy what we do here, please take a moment to become a patron by going to patreoncom Euronaut or to Euronaut.org and find the patron button. We greatly appreciate your contributions. So how's it going, Rusana? How are things in the Bay?
1: Things are going pretty well. I honestly enjoy California winter.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. L- let me tell you, living in Pittsburgh, I miss California winter, which means no winter. But you know what can one do?
1: Well, soon you're going to teleport to a tropical country and it's all going to be a little better.
0: Yes, yes. I'm going to Costa Rica in a couple of days. So part of it is, of course, vacation. But to be honest, it's also part of a scoping out my potential retirement place because I need an exit strategy <laughs> before this place falls apart. <laughs> so but anyways, we have this interview with Gabriela Safran, who has this really interesting book called Recording Russia, trying to listen in the 19th century. And uh, what are some of your thoughts, takeaways you had from this interview? What was interesting to you?
1: I really appreciated the last bit of our conversation on silence, even though the the topic was sound, but we did talk about silence quite a bit. And Gabriella gave this really nuanced understanding on what silence could mean in different contexts. And it made me think about some of the cases when I, through my work as an anthropologist, came across silence. One moment particularly was... Specifically, when I was first starting out, I, I worked with an indigenous community in western Siberia. They're called the Selkup. And during my first trip, I was really baffled or puzzled by the fact that no one wanted to talk to me. We traveled on snowmobiles. And so we would stop at these different villages or maybe you could say outposts. And I would walk in with other people and no one would talk to me, not even address me or even mention that I was there. I was kind of like invisible. And at the time, I just didn't have, I guess, enough background knowledge to understand like what was going on. So I thought, well, how rude. (laughs) Maybe they're afraid of me or maybe they're embarrassed or something like that. You know, I'm Russian, but I'm still, I'm different. I'm from a different region, whatever. But then later, I understood that silence is actually a form of Respect. In the Selkup community, it's not polite to ask somebody you just met questions. You're not supposed to do that. It's a very rude thing to be asking. Hey, where are you going? What's the purpose of your trip? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So yeah, that's just kind of an anecdotal story that came to my mind. And another thing is Gabriella was talking about how silence could mean a refusal. Could be a politics of refusal, and I also started thinking about how, in indigenous studies, there's this idea that certain people they choose to be silenced, choose to be unknown or invisible because they don't want to be represented, they don't want to be represented in the wrong way or talked about by, like, say, an outsider, etc.
0: Yeah, and, and and I I really enjoyed that. Brief conversation we had about silence as well. And also for thinking about this idea that we, in our kind of everyday political discourse and everyday lives, we really put a lot of emphasis on the voice, on people speaking or the people's right to speak and then listening to those who speak. And I thought it was really kind of interesting to think about, well, maybe we're putting too much emphasis on the power of speaking. And not considering what you just said, that, no, I refuse. I don't want to be represented. I don't want my story to be used as whatever it is used for. I don't want to speak for my community or things like this, which is something that I think I didn't think about because we put so much emphasis on hearing the voices of the people or of marginalized people that I forgot about how much power can come from the fact that they just refused to speak. So I, I thought it was really interesting. And the other thing I thought was really interesting, this whole notion of listening to the people, hearing the people's voices, has such a long history. <laughs> it seems like the intent and the things we assume that comes out of listening to people's voices haven't really changed much in this sense. Like, we put a lot of value in those voices, but also I think we put a lot of value in to what they give us.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is this very persistent myth about us being modern, having lost our roots, having lost our connection with the tradition, but there's gotta be somewhere out there, the people who are part of our community, but they're still like holding on to those traditional values as they would say in Russia today, right? <laughs> Well, that's basically what I wanted to say. It's like it, it's a myth. It's a very persistent myth. I don't think it's like anyone's malicious or pragmatic intent. It's just to say uh, nostalgia for something that we have lost, but probably somewhere it's still being preserved. It's a, it's a hope, right? It's a hope that somewhere out there it's still alive. There are all these epic songs that are still being sung. There are the languages that are still being spoken, even though we forgot our native tongues. It's like numerous examples from around the world.
0: Well, I hope listeners find this as interesting as both of us did, because I think it's a fascinating topic. And as I said repeatedly in the interview, my own recent dive into thinking about sound and the past, it really spoke to me in many ways. I have an emerging new awareness of these issues. So why don't you go ahead and introduce Gabriella?
1: Gabriela Safran teaches in the Slavic department at Stanford, where she is the Eva Chernov-Loki professor in Jewish studies. She is a specialist in late imperial Russian and Yiddish literatures, folklore, and lexicography. Her recent books include Wandering Soul: The Dibooks Creator as Anski, the co-edited volume The Whole World in a Book: Dictionaries in the 19th Century, and Recording Russia: Trying to Listen in the 19th Century, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Gabriela Safrán. <laughs>
0: Well, Gabriella, it's really nice to talk to you. When I saw your book in I don't know, some internet search or whatever, and I saw this thing recording Russia, I was really attracted to it because As I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, I'm really interested in sound now and in podcasting and I'm teaching a class on sound and history and how we conceptualize what the past sounded like. So, you know, your book is really relevant. And then there's so little work on Russia and the wider region in dealing with kind of sound issues and what the past might have sounded like or what people heard, right? We're not just dealing with sound with your book. But your new book is Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century, which examines this persistent, long historical effort of Russian intellectuals to, quote-unquote, hear the people. And I'm just curious, how did you get interested in this? Where did this topic come from? And how did it grab you?
2: Oh, okay. So it came out of the book that I wrote before. So I had spent years working on a biography and another set of projects related to S. Onsky, Shloyma zanvil who was a Yiddish and Russian writer, playwright, ethnographer, uh, very dedicated socialist revolutionary radical from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I wrote the first full-length biography of him and it was a really fun project. And I read a lot of memoirs in Russian and Yiddish. And I found that constantly people drew attention to Anski as a listener to Russian miners and peasants, a listener to these like poor shtetl Jews, and I was really fascinated by why his memoirists felt was necessary to draw our attention to how he was such a good listener and what were the stakes in being a good listener. And then I was also really fascinated by Anski as a user of technology. So he used uh, a gramophone. He organized these big uh, ethnographic expeditions to shtetls near Kiev, mostly sort of Uh, Hasidic communities in Ukraine. And he brought along these grad students who could run a gramophone for him and who had a big camera that they could use to photograph people. And Onsky himself was really fascinated by technology of recording, technology of demonstrating his results to people. He used magic lantern pictures to show people, like early slideshows, to show things he wanted to talk about and so i became just really interested in this like history of communication history of technology history of propaganda history of ethnography and how those relate to just this image of the lone virtuosic listener and how this person he but it could also be she historically and in, in the russian context certainly how this person is a good listener in a way that has to do with technology and it has to do with their virtue And their ability to be convincing in getting people to talk to them. So I thought that's the most fascinating thing for me right now about coming out of that research. And I wanted to pursue it backwards in time and try to figure out where it came from. And first I thought it's going to be all about Jewish ethnographers of Slavic peasants, people like Anski. But then the more I did research, the more I realized it wasn't about Jews necessarily, it was about maybe German speakers or other migrants and children of migrants to the Russian Empire and the way that they began to think of themselves as professional or virtuosic or especially good listeners to the Russian people or the peoples of the Russian Empire and the way other people criticized them for being good or maybe not very good listeners of this kind. So that's where it came from.
0: Were those recordings that he made preserved?
2: Onsky's recordings? Yeah, yes. they yes, were. Yes, they're in Kiev. They're in Kiev. Wow. They are at the Vernadsky Library, the enormous, unbelievable, wonderful Judaica collection of the Vernadsky Library. It's hundreds of wax cylinder recordings. Wax cylinder recordings are just three minutes long. So hundreds doesn't mean many, many minutes, but it is a lot of minutes. And they are a cultural heritage. They've been digitized already good, you know, 15, 20 years ago. They've been digitized. So, yeah, they're a fantastic resource. There's at least five CDs that have been made based on the, these recordings, which are mostly music, a lot of liturgical music. So, the things that Anski thought would die out is what he especially wanted to record. So, he thought that the Jewish liturgy and Jewish religion would die out because he was a socialist. It turned out he was wrong. Other things die out and religion. Is alive and well.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I know these wax cylinders are incredibly difficult to preserve. They become brittle and they break really easy. So the fact that's great to hear that a they were preserved because a lot of that stuff. What years was he doing recordings?
2: 1911 through 1914, so just on the eve of World War One. Yeah, and they were recorded. There's a amazing, fascinating story of the history of the collections, the ethnographic collections that Onski made. In those pre-World War One years, that were then ended up in Kiev, were brought to the Urals during World War II to preserve them, along with all kinds of other cultural heritage stuff. Were brought back to Kiev after World War II, were then slated for uh, destruction during the kind of anti-Jewish campaigns under Stalin. The librarians who were supposed to destroy them instead deaccessioned them, so they became invisible to researchers, but they continued to exist and they were hidden in a church. But people knew that they still existed. So then it was acknowledged that they existed in the immediate post-Soviet period. And during the 90s, researchers went back and began to look at them and it's an enormous treasure trove of materials. It's the whole Judaica collection of the Vernonsky Library. So it's a huge amount of stuff. But the Onsky material is a very large archive within that collection that includes the wax cylinders. And what ended up happening is that Ukrainian technologists devised their own technology for recording these wax cylinders without damaging them.
0: Oh, wow, what, a, what an incredible story. <laughs> yeah. So why did people like Unsky and other Russian intellectuals that you examine in your book, why did they want to listen to, quote unquote, the people? Who are the people? And why would they want to hear them or listen to them or record them in a variety of ways?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it changes over time, right? So for Onsky, he recorded Ukrainian miners. He recorded salt miners in eastern Ukraine. So they're not necessarily ethnic Ukrainians. It's you know disputable who they were, but they were miners. And he recorded their songs on paper and then started to publish them already in the 1880s for him he was he was revolutionary he was interested in having people in the cities know more about the experiences of rural and working class poor people so some of it was just this like exposure how do you make these voices audible and then i think some of it was also about establishing contact with these people, with the goal of ultimately radicalizing them. And Anski, in the 1880s, he wasn't yet a socialist revolutionary. There weren't socialist revolutionaries, he was populist, but it was part of a process of politicization of these people, was establishing a dialogue with them and listening to them, attending to them, recording them, was part of that. That's for Anski. That's for and then he shifted by the first decade of the 20th century he becomes really interested in recording shtetl Jews of Hasidic background. So those are people who are more like himself in that his family was uh, poor shtetl Jews, basically. So that sense of like how distant is he from the people he's recording, that shifts over time. It's a somewhat different story for the generation of the mid-19th century. and, And I tend to see the... Russian historians think there's a big difference between the people of the 40s and the people of the 60s, but I feel like, no, there's the people of the mid-century. So I think those people of the mid-century, whether it's travelers from Western Europe to Russia or Russian writers, they are interested in listening to and recording the people, for all kinds of reasons, some of which have to do with the sense of impending end of serfdom, the desire for some kind of an awareness that there's democratic forms of government that are coming into existence elsewhere and a desire for that kind of form of government happening in Russia also. So there's there are more explicitly political motivations with that, that mid-century Generation. So there's, yeah, there's lots of reasons. The desire for information, the desire, a sense of guilt. I think that a lot of the writers who interest me, both Anski and these mid 19th century travelers to Russia and Russian writers, there's a sense of there's all these people out there and I have all these privileges and they don't have them. And how do I maybe owe them something? Do I have some obligation? And then at the same time, everyone that I'm interested in is. A writer. They want to get published. They're competing with other writers for a limited amount of space on the page in journals or a limited amount of readerly attention. And there's an awareness that the public is interested. And if I can bring the public the things that they want, these voices that the public is interested in, that will be good for my own career. I think sometimes we want to distinguish between our kind of self-interested motives and our more genuine ethical motives, our altruistic motives. And I don't know if we can fully distinguish.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's weird because as you just kind of the way you put it out, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me, of course, is that there is a narcissistic impulse in some way, right? Putting aside all those other things. But I'm fascinated by, you know, this is a of the mid-century people that you mentioned this is an interesting impulse. All these movements of going to the people, this populist movement of trying to radicalize the people to discover the soul of Russian-ness, right? The quote unquote people are this repository for all sorts of like self-understanding by the listener. And it's interesting to me too, that This is part of a, at least in the Western world or modern, you know, industrializing world, impulse that's throughout, right? Preserving the past, trying to find the essence of the nation. Could you talk a little bit about how perhaps they were interested in these questions as well?
2: Yeah, they were. So to start by thinking about narcissism. In doing the research for this book, I became really fascinated by how there's a kind of like self-accusatory tone in the history of anthropology that anthropologists, I think, over the last 40 years have been feeling guilty about how they seem to be They say that they're studying someone else, but it's really all about themselves in some sense. Maybe it's about themselves and the power that people like themselves have over people like the people they're studying. Or maybe it's just about themselves in a kind of more personal way. And I guess as a literary scholar, my sense is, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. Uh Or, Or that's not, I'm not there to be accusatory. I'm more just interested in these nineteenth century writers and their motivations. And I'm not there to judge their motivations so much as and to condemn them as unethical. I feel like they have these motivations. We we all are interested in ourselves and we all probably see others our interactions with others have something to do with our with ourselves. And I don't know if we can separate from that. So that's an answer about narcissism.
0: Right. I didn't want to sound like I was accusing them of doing something, because what's interesting to me is the things they were looking for, the questions they wanted answers for, that they saw the answers lied in the people.
2: Yeah. Are they looking for nation? Are they looking for something else? My impulse is that some of them, what I think I saw is that for some of them, it mattered to define Russia or Russianness. In opposition to something else, that seemed to me to be the case for the Marquis de Custine. He seemed to like the idea that there's some kind of Russianness that's oppressed and silent and censored, in a fundamental way, in an essential way. And I think that then there's there's a kind of opposing Slavophile set of ideas, which is, yeah there's a kind of russianness associated with silence or quiet and that's a good thing it's about a kind of communal quiet identity that to which western europeans do not and never will have access so it's a reappropriation of this maybe slur by Kustin. and i i was fascinated to see The writers I looked at, some of whom are identified as Slavophiles, some of whom are not identified as Slavophiles, to see them kind of playing with this idea that, okay, maybe there's some kind of communal, essential, silent, communal Russian identity. I think that's a productive concept for them, and I think that some of them produce work that is durable and that has continuing aesthetic value (laughs) um, coming out of that, that conceit of... Russian identity is silent and communal. And at the same time, I myself am, am skeptical about the idea of these like essential identities. And I think that a lot of what that Slavophile discourse about a kind of essential Russianness ness that's tied to quiet and communal understanding, that is actually part of a much larger mid-19th century set of ideas about communication that's tied to things that are transnational, like the rise of the telegraph, and that we can actually see the Slavophiles using telegraph-like language in talking about kind of communal understanding. And we see that same language that references the telegraph or the sort of fantasy of Immediate, silent, perfect communication, we see that also appear in mid 19th century American sources or European sources. So I want to resituate some of the familiar Slavophile discourse about nation. I want to resituate that in a larger history of communication technology and the discourse of communication technology.
1: Well, I'm curious to hear what intellectuals actually heard. What did they find out (laughs) other than science? Yeah, as an
0: anthropologist, right?
1: (laughs)
2: Yeah, you know, so many things. I mean, my book is more about the kind of question of metapragmatics. So it's not what I'm really interested in and able to talk about is not so much what they heard, but what they said about their own process of hearing. but. That said, I do think they heard some things. And I I was really intrigued by, for instance, in the chapter on Dostoevsky, many scholars have looked at Dostoevsky's prison notebook, right? Dostoevsky spent some time in the 1850s in a prison in Siberia. And for various reasons, he was allowed, he was able to keep a notebook where he wrote down What the other prisoners said, the other mostly lower class prisoners from all different ethnic groups. Dostoevsky was fascinated by their words and he kept a record of jokes and stories and songs and everything they said. So I was really fascinated by Dostoevsky's account of a ritual insult contest meaning a contest among prisoners where they, one insults, the other insults him back, so it's between a pair. All the other prisoners kind of gather around and admire this contest of insults. Ritual insults means it's like a formal, performative, entertaining genre in which people insult each other fantastically, outrageously, using inventive language, and it's understood that no one is going to physically attack anyone else, that these are not serious, that it's more performative than it is actually threatening. So it appears that Dostoevsky heard ritual insult contests in the prison. His prison notebook really does include a lengthy account of a ritual insult contest. And then in the novel, Notes from the Dead House, that he writes after he gets out of prison in the early 1860s, he includes this very long account of a ritual insult contest that is pretty much verbatim from the notebook, right? And then my sense is that Dostoevsky was a very insult-oriented guy, and he liked to insult people, and he tended to draw other people's insults, and he was like, not easy, right? And so in my chapter on Dostoevsky and the ritual insults, I end up tracing this ritual insult contest of a sort that he has with another writer, Lyskov, over the question of who is better at reproducing, imitating the speech of priests. Both Dostoevsky and Liskov were the children of Russian Orthodox priests or people who were from the class of Russian Orthodox priests. Their fathers didn't become priests, but they could have. So I feel like that's a point where I'm not just talking about metapragmatics. I'm talking about things that Dostoevsky for sure Heard. There's other points where I think they heard things through the lens of what had already been recorded. There's these wonderful, the bulinli, the epic songs, the heroic epic songs that were preserved in the Russian far north. I have a chapter about Pavel Rybnikov, an ethnographer who found himself in the far north and is very famous for recording these epic songs. And he really did record them for sure. But also what I think is that when he went to listen to them, he was affected by how other people had already been recording
0: them.
1: Well, this is really fascinating, especially because I only heard about ritual insults in the African-American context. Yeah, your mom is so
0: fat, that (laughs) context.
1: (laughs) So it's really fascinating to hear that something like a similar Mm -hmm. tradition, which is like the African-American context is well studied in the sociolinguistics. It's like classic example. It's really cool that there is something like that in Russian peasant tradition as well. I don't know. Since we started talking about the Belini, maybe I should jump to that question and ask could you tell our listeners a bit more about this tradition of skaziteli or um I, I guess storytellers and russian epic poems because i'm sure that not many people are familiar with it can i go back and say a little bit more about ritual insults though
2: <laughs> yeah yeah so i found this so interesting right i i also i love this american sociolinguistics tradition and As I was preparing to write this, I found myself, I sat in on sociolinguistics classes and I read all this stuff about ritual insults in the African-American context. So I felt like I was really ready to recognize them in Dostoevsky's Prison Notebook. And they're also, they are part of, I'm also a Yiddishist. So in the Yiddish context, there are ritual insults. Interestingly, in Yiddish, they tend to be gendered feminine. One, there's a notion of, women selling something in a marketplace as ritually insulting each other and each other's goods. So I believe this to be a reality. I think there were ritual insults and also very elaborate performative comic curses. I think this really existed in Yiddish and it made its way in Yiddish very evidently into literature. So Sholm Aleichem and also other writers, Karpinovich. There's other people who just love the use of the ritual insult as the basis of prose fiction. All right? So I think I was ready to see it. Ritual insults are evident in all kinds of Germanic languages. I believe they probably are more prevalent in Slavic cultures than the scholarly record would indicate. I think that it's helpful to just look with a new eye at these things, sort of familiar ethnographic sources like Dostoevsky's prison notebook, just with a new eye. And then you can see something that was there all along, but that for some reason people didn't write about. So I'm really intrigued. Why why have people written so little? about Dostoevsky and the ritual insult contest in prison when this is like such a canonical source. And I don't know. I'd love to know, Versano why you think that might
1: be the case. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a literary scholar, so I'm not sure. But probably like you were saying, it's so familiar, but maybe people didn't register it as such I even started thinking about some conversations I heard growing up in in Tomsk in Siberia where men do insult each other, but I never just put these two things together.
0: I think, too, my kind of stab at this is, and this comes from my own recent experience, and also I think maybe you had a similar experience when you were doing the research for this book. When you're attentive reading the stuff from sound studies, I started to become attentive to even words that denote sound. Or listening or hearing. And there's something about that I found focusing, it produced a different type of reading of texts than I did otherwise. And I'm wondering if that kind of methodological switch is maybe what allows one to maybe pick up those kinds of things. I don't know. This is just a something
2: yeah. I came up with. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I I think that that is part of it. I think we are so uncritical about our listening. We tend to think, I just listen. But really, I think we listen in very different ways at different moments. And I think we're conscious of our own listening, often as performative. And one thing I did in the book, I was very inspired by Michel Chion, a French theorist of film sound. He argues that there's four different there's various modes of listening in film acousmatic listening where you can't see the source of sound semantic listening where you're listening and you're decoding reduced listening where you're you're somehow hearing something just as sound i found that so inspirational and i thought okay maybe these mid 19th century people they're also listening in all these different modes And maybe there are modes of listening that make you take in the ritual insult contest as it is meant to be produced. You listen in a mocking way. It's produced in a mocking way. People produce these outrageous insults in kind of this mocking way. And then you understand it as a kind of comic mockery. You listen in that way, as opposed to maybe listening semantically and thinking, Oh, your mother really is whatever. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs>
0: so what about these epic poems and songs and tales?
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, Bulinli, these heroic epic songs that in the Russian Empire were preserved in the far north and in some other sort of places distant from the capitals, they were sung by skaziteli or singers, sayers. Interestingly, those singers could be not only men but also women certain songs could be known in a family and produced sung by you know a, a parent and then a child and a kind of fascinating thing is the question of whether they had died out and whether they could be rediscovered right so they did not die out these songs continued to be sung through the 17th century, the 18th century, into the 19th century. And there were people in the far north recording these songs and keeping long transcripts of these wonderful heroic songs. What I'm fascinated by, what I wrote about in my book, was how this one ethnographer, Pavel Rybnikov, found himself in the far north and began to record these songs in the wake of other people having already recorded them but he achieved renown for having discovered them as though they had uh, as though no one had known that they were still being sung and he started to record them he started to publish them and then people started to say to him his publishers in the early 1860s started to say to him wait, really? Are you sure? You're really recording recording these songs? They're for real? And then he wrote up a little account of his almost magical first moment of hearing one of these songs sung by a singer, a skezitin, and that his account began to circulate and took on this tremendous importance. And in his account, he's by the side of a, a lake and he falls asleep. And then he begins to hear this heroic song sung in his sleep and then he wakes up and it's really happening. It's really being sung. Oh my goodness. And then he records it. And what I find really marvelous is that the song, the heroic song that he hears sung is a song of a singer, Sadko. So this is Sadko. For those of you who are into Russian opera, there's an, an opera about this heroic song, Sadko. It's a song that thematizes listening at night in the dark on the edge of a big northern lake. It's a very powerful, this story allows uh, Rybnikov in a very powerful way to say, look, I am the person who's discovered that this ancient Russian tradition is still alive. Wow, I'm so great. And he really designed that story in a way by bringing in specifically the song of Sadko he makes his story more powerful but i don't want to say that i disrespect ribnikov i think okay maybe he had to produce this story and circulate this story in order for people to accept that his transcripts were authentic maybe there's something real maybe he really did hear this stuff at night on the edge of the lake maybe he really did hear the song of sadko maybe i'm not i'm not here to judge that But I'm fascinated by the way that he gets this great uptake with his account of his discovery that these songs are still being sung.
0: I want to ask a a methodological question along these lines, because your book is called Recording Russia. Even in our discussion so far, there's lots of words that we're using that denote sound. But really what we're talking about for the most part are texts, because a lot of the material dealing with is pre-sound recording. And I'm just curious how you dealt with that issue of the fact that you're not necessarily focused on the sounds of things, but the sounds are there in the words. Like some of the people you're looking at are looking at the way things sound. The whole idea of silence is a good example of that. The absence of quote unquote sound, even though there is never that. Nonetheless, I'm curious how you dealt with this as someone who's looking at texts of recording, textual recordings of potential voices, quote unquote.
2: I think this worried me more at the beginning of the project. I think when I started out this project, people kept asking me, well, are you listening to crackly old recordings? And I would say for the Onsky book, I listened to crackly old recordings and I didn't feel that I was very good at it. So I was looking for a project where I didn't have to listen to crackly old recordings. Yeah,
0: it kind of goes to you as a listener.
2: Yes, I'm not virtuosic at listening to crackly old recordings. But at first I had a certain amount of like guilt about it and I thought, "Oh, if I was really good, I would listen to crackly old recordings." But then after a while, after, you know, spending a number of years reading more in sound studies and reading these sources more carefully, I realized that everything is approximate. The crackly old recordings are approximate. You get some things and you don't get other things. You get some of the truth of the speaker and some of maybe the truth of the recorder from the crackly old recordings. And other parts of those truths are not available to you. And a written transcript is not that different. It is also a recording technology. Pen and paper are a recording technology. If you read something like Dostoevsky's Prison Notebook, you get some of the truth of those ritual insulting prisoners. You get some of the truth of Dostoevsky, some of it is concealed from you. We have this fantasy that if you listen to actual, sort of mechanically recorded, crackly old recordings, we have this fantasy that the better the technology gets, the more perfect it is. We we should use the latest possible technology because that will give us the most perfect access, in my case, the most perfect access to the speaker and to the listener. But I became skeptical. I stopped feeling guilty. I began to feel like, okay, this is what I'm engaging with. I'm engaging with, with writing. Writing is pretty good. Writing does a lot for us but not everything, but nothing does everything.
0: No, I, I think it's interesting that you rightly point out that even when we have this, I don't know, kind of fetishism, if it's recorded, if we can hear the actual sound of somebody's voice, for example, we're getting to some truth. And you rightly point out that, well, <laughs> maybe, but probably not. And the best we can do is aspire and leave it at that and move on.
2: (laughs) And maybe it's helpful for us to move away from a notion that, like we know, right? You and me, we know that we are in control, at least to some degree, of our oral production. We're not just producing sounds that are this kind of fundamental, unvarnished, Internal essential truth. They are a performance that we're producing in the moment, and the more we can understand that those prisoners in the prison with Dostoevsky, they are performing, and that all of the people that the Skazicili are performing, uh, all the people who are being listened to by the the listeners that I studied, they are performing in some way. They're not giving us a truth so much as they're giving us something that they're designing on purpose, and I think that that awareness helps us move away from fetishizing a specific recording technology as providing us that truth
1: i can i totally relate to what you just said gabriella i think there is a similar idea in film studies right when we talk about documentary filmmaking if you want like this non subjective gaze you should watch security cameras right but even then like the way that they're positioned, their resolution, like we can like keep going on and on about it. Now I just wanted to shift gears and ask you about another protagonist of your book, Vladimir Dal. What's his story and how did he create what later became the dictionary of the Russian language? I actually do have four volumes at home sitting on my shelf. (laughs) Excellent.
2: Excellent. Yeah. I mean, Dal was so fascinating so he was born at the beginning of the 19th century. He's the child of migrants to the empire, or his father was a migrant, a Danish migrant to the empire, and his mother was a Baltic German. And died was this you know, brilliant person who went through many careers as a doctor, as an engineer, as an imperial administrator. And throughout, he's just really fascinated by language, by different languages. And he becomes... As a pretty young man, he begins to collect words and write them down on little pieces of paper. And at the same time, he's exploring the world around him in so many ways and developing so many theories or adhering to many theories, some of which we would be skeptical about now. Homeopathy or spiritualism, he believed, you could speak to the dead using technology that's a little bit like a telegraph. He was not alone in this idea in the mid-19th century. Over time, he becomes more and more involved in his behavior of collecting and writing down the words that he hears. And he's also, I think, always trying to defend himself as the right kind of imperial administrator. He's trying to defend himself as loyal to the Russian empire, as not too German, as really Russian. And he's In conversation with those Slavophiles that we were talking about earlier, the Slavophiles who were imagining that being really Russian means being part of this kind of almost silent, wordless communion, a communion that excludes foreigners like Germans. And Dial is kind of in conversation with this and also trying to find a space for himself as a listener. And he ends up arguing for a way of listening that's maximally inclusive. So I call this omnivorous listening, which is funny because eating is different from listening, but whatever, it's omnivorous listening because that's the word I could come up with. And I see him as omnivorously listening, trying to collect as many words as possible, also as many sayings as possible, and constantly arguing that He's going to publish his words and his sayings in a way that's natural and not excessively abstract or organized in sort of a German way. And it's in that context that he comes up with this sort of funny uh, organizational technique for his dictionary, his famous dictionary that you guys both have, and that I have also, of course. You may have noticed when you go to use that dictionary, does famous 19th century Russian dictionary, it's incredibly hard to find the word you want in the dictionary. I see Sean nodding very energetically here. <laughs> so he's had this experience. It's a little easier when you use the dictionary online. But if you use it on paper, you have to figure out, for the words you're looking for, you have to figure out what common word dialed thought it was related to, and then you'll find the word you want in an entry where the head word is the common word that dialed thinks it's related to. It's the most important head word and then the dictionary is alphabetized, the entries are alphabetized according to the head words. so this can mean that you spend hours looking for the word that you're looking for because it doesn't necessarily start with the same letter as. The head word under which the nest, the, the entry in which it is alphabetized. So, Dahl did this weird thing with his organization of his dictionary, and he called his entries nests, like birds' nests or other animals in Russian can also live in habitats that are called nests. So, why did Dahl call his dictionary entries nests? Well, Dahl, as this person who was just interested in everything. He was also interested in ornithology. He was interested in natural history. He wrote lots of articles about birds and other kinds of animals. And he was really fascinated by nests, by the habitats of animals. He loved the idea that there's these habitats in which all different kinds of animals can be welcomed, can come in, and it doesn't matter if those animals are genetically related he was really interested in the concept of birds' nests that are created by one kind of bird and then inhabited by another kind of bird, right? And he loved the idea of nests as being something that's created in a kind of organic, unplanned way. So for that reason, I think he borrows this word nest for his dictionary entries, which allow him to display the Russian language as hospitable to words that come from different places from different sources, and maybe to listeners whose background is from different places, such as he himself, Dahl. So I'm really fascinated by just the attitude toward the world that emerges when Dahl calls the dictionary entries nests. And I'm also really intrigued by, as far as I can tell, and I've read a lot, as far as I can tell, none of the scholarship on Dahl talks about where does this word gnizdo nest, to name the dictionary entries, where does it come from? That word is used commonly for, by lexicographers in the period after Died. I have not found any lexicographers using it before Died. So I think Dodd must have invented that word. And like, why? Why have people not? People have written a lot about Dodd. Why have they not written about that? I don't know. They just weren't noticing.
0: I'm torn where I want to question I want to ask because I have two. And actually, I think this issue of silence is really interesting and In the first chapter about Dikustin, this like looking for the silence in Russia. And this is a theme we hear all the way to the present day, that the Russian people are silent. We don't hear them. And so silence has this connotation of repression, right? Of unfreedom. And therefore voice is to hear one's voice or to hear the Russian people's voices or allowing them to speak has a liberatory or a notion of freedom associated with it.
1: Can we think of silence as a politics of refusal as like something to...
0: Yeah, and you had this interesting comment about how the Slavophiles at least turned it around, where silence is a virtue. Can you talk a bit more about your encounter with silence in this study?
2: Yeah, I found that silence is, it's polysemous. It means lots of different things. Of course, as with probably any of us observers of the situation in Russia now, I do have a sense that I worry that my friends who are still in Russia, my very voluble Russian friends, whom I've always admired as speakers and as people who can just off the cuff give like a 45 minute lecture, because that's something that the Russian school system can train you to do. I worry that they are maybe being silenced. And I don't want to sort of, in too jocular a way, dismiss the idea of political silencing. I think there is silencing, and there is silencing now of people in Russia who are worried about being arrested, because there's lots of arrests happening right now, for speaking or for things that are actions that are taken to be certain kinds of speech. So that's true. That that happens. And at the same time, I'm skeptical at the idea that just voicing means liberation. I do think I sat in on a class at Stanford by Jonathan Rosa. He's a linguistic anthropologist teaching in our school of education. And I know he talks a lot about the, the certain kind of hypocrisy associated with the idea that speaking for a subordinate group that one belongs to is a kind of liberation. And he draws attention to all the ways in which actually people can be forced to speak for their subordinate or minoritized group. And that's not liberation. That's maybe performing a role that's useful for someone at some time, but it's not necessarily your choice. So I'm coming into this this question with an awareness of all the different meanings of silence. In my mid-19th century materials, I saw ways that silence is both embraced, as I mentioned, by the Slavophiles. I have a chapter on hochsthausen so another of those mid-19th century visitors to the empire. This one is a German visitor to the empire, a German-speaking visitor to the empire. He loves the idea of this tranquility, Russian tranquility. It's beautiful. And he wishes that German speakers would still have it, but they've lost it. But in Russia, they still have this tranquility. So this kind of fantasy of of a a healthy, essential, community-affirming silence that's very available to the people I look at. And at the same time, they explore other kinds of silence. Krigarovic, in his very famous story, The Village, about a kind of abused peasant woman, he writes really, I think, movingly about her refusal to speak as the one way that she can that she can claim a kind of agency. Some people are skeptical of that story and they criticize it. They say he produces this peasant woman and she doesn't even speak. And, you know, that's that's bad. But I feel like there are times and places where people can gain power by not speaking and by, by refusing to speak. So yeah, silence is like sound. It's not like there's just one kind of sound. We know that. So there's not one kind of silence.
0: Yeah. I did this kind of cheap thing where I did a word search of your book for soundscape. And one of the things that jumped up at me, this is the beauty of having electronic books rather than actual. One. Um, one of the things that jumped out to me is that when the word soundscape came up, the word distinctive Russian soundscape was used a few times. First off, there clearly seems to be some search for it, at least from your subjects. But were you able to identify a distinctive Russian soundscape? And what is that?
2: What is that? Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the word soundscape, I think, is associated in sound studies. It's associated with sort of the natural world a little bit more than with the urban world. People are intrigued by the notion of the soundscape of New Guinea. And in that context, I think, on the one hand, I'm skeptical about the idea that there's something just Russian, that there's a way of hearing sound, there's a way that sound resonates against trees. And yes, I'm skeptical that happens only in Russia. And at the same time, I'm willing to believe that far northern places with cold weather and snow sound might work differently from how it works in very warm jungles. I, I think that's probably correct. Probably different sorts of trees, different sorts of levels of moisture in the air, different presence of birds and insects creates a different kind of sound. And that the human voice is, is heard differently in different sound environments, right? We understand that very well ourselves, right? We know that we sound different when we're out in the woods, then if we're on Times Square. Yeah, we are tempted to speak differently. And we sound different. And so I do think there's probably such a thing as a soundscape of these northern places, such as those described by the people I write about. But are those soundscapes only to be found in Russia? Might they be found also in Canada? Probably.
1: Gabriela, as an anthropologist, I'm going to ask an ethnographic question or maybe ethnographically leaning question. I have a sense that listening to people's voices, especially from marginalized or historically dispossessed groups, has become a political and ethical slogan or maybe call, right? And given your research about efforts to listen to people's voices, what do you think about this agenda about this program within engaged scholarship?
2: I mean, I'm really fascinated by it. And I think that program or its its kind of pop manifestations <laughs> is part of what's inspired me. You know, I, I see on the one hand, Anski's memoirists were really excited at the idea of him as an especially virtuosic listener. On the other hand, I teach... A class for many years. Every year I would teach this class on folklore and literature at Stanford to freshmen and sophomores. And they would have to collect living folklore from some group to which they had access. So sometimes it was like ghost stories from their dorm or stories about their grandfather as relayed by all their different cousins, different kinds of groups that they had access to. And I became so fascinated by my students' desire. To provide voice or to attend to the voices of marginalized people and to define maybe sometimes people I didn't think of as that marginalized as marginalized in order to justify their own work. And I also was so fascinated by my students' sort of sense of the high stakes of the task that I was asking them to do. Sometimes when I felt that the stakes were maybe not that high, they felt high. I think something oh, I had a wonderful paper once about Mormon girls' summer camp songs. And my student who was Mormon felt like in order to gather some of these songs to record them she needed to get a group of girls who had gone to those camps together in her dorm room and to sing together these songs and she did and she wrote this really great paper and i felt like i don't know how uh, is it is, is she really possible is she going to exploit these her friends who also went to these mormon summer camps i don't think so but you know even in that case where it would seem like the identity of the researcher aligns pretty neatly with the identity of the researched subjects and that they're all Stanford students who are Mormon, who went to girls' summer camps, who are maybe sophomores. You know, like they're pretty similar. Even in that case, in speaking with my students, whom I mostly find brilliant and just so thoughtful, it was just fascinating for me to realize that, okay, this student is picking up on ways that she is maybe not fully adequately listening to or representing the experiences of these other students who seem so similar to her in their feelings about these songs that they sang at summer camp about like Noah's Ark and whatever. And I think the current interest in this subject is inspirational. And my work, my teaching has made me so aware of the difficulty of representing a group, the difficulty of knowing as a a researcher, a transcriber, that you are going to then adequately represent a group or that you can claim to adequately be representing a group with your research. And then the difficulty of any speaker who maybe presents themselves as a representative of that group, is that speaker really a representative of that group? What does that even mean? That's a kind of big philosophical, a political philosophy question, but it's also a sort of small technical question. About, like, what can you say? How can you label your recordings? So, I guess the answer to your question is I do, I have been fascinated by the discourse you're describing. I'm inspired by it. And I think that it opens up questions that we don't have answers to. We don't have easy answers to in the present. And that the people that I was writing about, my mid 19th century listeners, in the Russian Empire, my Stanford students are these like incredibly brilliant, thoughtful people who themselves were aware of the
1: limitations of their own claims. That was Gabriela Safran. Gabriela Safran teaches in the Slavic department at Stanford, where she is the Eva Chernov Loki professor in Jewish studies. She is a specialist in late-imperial Russian and Yiddish literatures, folklore, and lexicography. Her recent books include *Wandering Soul, the D-book's creator as Ansky, the co-edited volume The Whole World in a Book, Dictionaries in the 19th Century, and Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century, published by Cornell University Press. And I'm your
0: host, Sean Guillory. And I'm
1: your fellow co-host, Rosanna Novikova.
0: This episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at PodCuts Editing. You know, editing a podcast doesn't have to be a hassle and it can take a lot of time. That's why we here at The Eurasian Not have partnered with PodCuts Editing to utilize Daniel's great service to streamline our production process and increase our podcast quality. So if you're interested in his services, please head to www.podcutsediting.com and Daniel will give you your first edit for free. And as you know, the Eurasian Nod is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. You can really help us out by becoming a patron to the podcast, donating a couple of bucks every month goes a long way. And if for whatever reason you can't do that, then we greatly appreciate it. You spread the word, share this episode and other episodes on social media with family to talk about the podcast with your friends and, and let them know what we're doing here. So, until next time, bye
1: bye.